80 Proof Politics is brought to you by Big Wig Media, part of the Evergreen Podcast family. You can find this and other fascinating podcasts from our nation's capital at bigwigpodcast.com. Most of my job is storytelling, you know, telling the stories of remarkable men and women entrepreneurs and, and founders. We get so caught up in the politics of stuff, which are headline news, we forget sometimes that the federal government needs good people working in it so that the government writ large can do good things for people. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. If you're a part of the federal policy arena in any sense, you know the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I mean, even if you've just visited D.C. and walked by the White House, you've seen their impressive headquarters. It is a beautiful Beaux-Arts building that takes up pretty much a fourth of the block at the corner of Connecticut and H. Uh, it opened in 1925. It was designed by a gentleman by the name of Cass Gilbert, who is known for a number of other things, including the Treasury Annex, the Supreme Court building, and New York's first skyscraper, the Woolworth building. One of the best aspects of the chamber headquarters has got to be its rooftop. It is right on top of Lafayette Square. It's a pitching wedge from the White House. <laughs> it looks out to the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial. You can even see a plane landing at National Airport. And I'm here on this gorgeous fall afternoon with an old friend, Tom Sullivan. Welcome to 80 Proof Politics, Tom. Cheers. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's a beautiful afternoon up here uh, on the chamber's rooftop. You know, this this actually, this we've been around for over a hundred years. This might be the first podcast uh, on the roof. Oh, making history on eighty proof politics once again. I love it. The reason we're on the roof of the chamber is because Tom is vice president of small business policy for the chamber. So. Which I, is very fitting, by the way, given his extensive history of decades representing, advocating for, fighting for policies that help American small businesses. But, Tom, I'd like to start at the top. In its mission statement, one of the things the Chamber says is that it not only is the world's largest organization looking out for businesses, but it advocates, connects informs and fights for those businesses. How exactly does the chamber do that? Well, Bill, thank you for the, the great intro. Uh, you know, 
having three million businesses as members that include over two thousand local, state, and regional chambers of commerce. Uh, sometimes it's hard to figure out what we should be working on because right? at any given moment there are hundreds of issues being considered by the White House, regulatory agencies, uh, and Congress that will affect thousands of those members. And so uh, I think it's a good starting point about the vastness of our membership. And when it comes right down to it, we advocate for them any way possible. We advocate before Congress. We advocate before the White House, we advocate before the regulatory agencies. And you know, if sometimes we're unsuccessful in those advocacy efforts, we have an amazing litigation team where we take several pro-business issues and defend business all the way up to the Supreme Court. In fact, we actually just uh, filed an amicus brief in a wetlands case that was considered by the Supreme Court less than a month ago. Uh, we're in almost every federal court in the United States. And it's, we really utilize what I would refer to as three-pronged advocacy, where you recognize America's uniqueness of having three branches of government. And to the U.S. Chamber's credit, we advocate at each one of those branches. And, and um we get our priorities directly from our members and from those 2,000 state, local, and regional chambers of commerce. I saw that there's been some recent action at the FTC. I imagine that's one of those key agencies for the chamber. It is, and it's really one of the neat parts about working at the U.S. Chamber is there are men and women who are experts in every part of government, and really tapping into those resources from where I sit from a small business advocacy perspective is really useful and it's a lot of fun because you get to you get to meet some really pretty incredible people but yes we have experts on competition that obviously uh, work every day with FTC we are pushing back against what we view as an aggressive overreach by FTC uh, and unfortunately some of that overreach is at other regulatory agencies as well and so uh, we've got a full court press going right now uh, at all of those agencies, and our business membership is happy that we're doing that. Yeah. It, as the world's largest organization supporting businesses, your membership has to be huge. It has to be very diverse. I know you also represent local chambers of commerce, but how does the chamber balance that diversity when it's setting its agenda? Well, there, there's a there's a couple of, of ways that we try to balance it. So from an organizational perspective and from a policy perspective, which is the area I, I work in, we have committees. You know, those committees are made up, well, my committee in, in particular is made up of small business owners, and we go to them for advice. What position should we take on any given issue, whether it's tax or workforce or health care? Um, and we have these policy committees extending across all issue areas, like health care, like, pension, like pensions, like tax. And each one of these policy areas taps into the richness of our membership in order 
to gain insight in what position we should take. And then ultimately, uh, the decision of what, to, what position to take, once we do survey our policy committees, it is up to our top policy officer, who's Neil Bradley, and the president of the chamber, who's Suzanne Clark. Obviously, the Fortune 500 companies have played in this town since the early 70s, certainly accelerated through the 80s and 90s, and now we see this wave of big tech getting really active. Facing that sort of history of the chamber, tell us what is the role of the Small Business Council and exactly what you're doing. You know, Bill, you, you mentioned really what has been the toughest part of my job throughout my career in advocating for small business. Because in many policy issues, there is a big business versus small business dynamic. At the U.S. Chamber, the one difference is that with three million members, the ability to convene so many different sectors, so many different sizes, you're able to take commonalities of interest and really focus in on those areas. I, to put it more candidly, we try to avoid those areas where it is a big versus small. Um, it's not easy. And I think when, when you and I first got to know each other, I had jet black hair. It's, 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 uh, it's <laughs> hard, to, hard, hard to describe on a podcast, but it's, it looks more like Santa Claus than Tom Cruise right now. And uh, a lot of that gray hair is from trying to navigate between controversies of big versus small. And I'm lucky at the chamber that there are enough issues that have a commonality of interests, so that becomes less of a problem. I was looking at the issues that are the priorities for the chamber, and then one jumped out at me. It's climate. A lot of people would say that business is more the problem than the solution, but the chamber's taking a different approach. How does small business contribute to that dialogue? Small business owners as community leaders live and work in the same places. And because of that, they're generally aggressive stewards of their environment. And so the chambers look at business leadership in climate change is actually analogous to small business leadership in climate change. Hmm. And it reflects the reality that small businesses live every day. If you're walking to your business or if your five employees, which is a decent-sized small business, are all driving less than five to ten minutes to where they work, they care more deeply about their community and the environment than someone who works in Washington, D.C., hundreds or thousands of miles away. And so this idea of highlighting the stewardship by business owners is not unique from a small business perspective. And I give credit to the broader chamber of trying to shine the spotlight on that leadership from a big business perspective as well. The impact of COVID and the pandemic on small businesses was well known. It was, it was really the first big economic story of the lockdown in 2020. What role did your council and the chamber play navigating small businesses through those challenges? We learned 
a, a valuable lesson at the, at, at the U.S. Chamber. You know, being an advocacy organization for over 100 years, we were really good at lobbying, really good at persuasion. We weren't so good at just giving easy-to-understand business advice. So, for instance... You know, Tom, not to interrupt, but that is something I've come across with a number of trade associations as well. There seems to be morphing from this first-in-time knowledge just from being in Washington, because everybody's got social media, everybody watches cable news, right, to more of a support structure. Is that what you're saying? So when the pandemic first caused governments to shut businesses down, there was an enormous inbound from local chambers of commerce wanting to know what the federal government was doing to help. And to the credit, U.S. Chamber pivoted like every small business had to pivot. We turned very quickly into an advice and connecting resource for small businesses, uh, actually for all businesses. We coincidentally had just launched a small business digital platform, which turns out to have been brilliant timing. Uh, that digital platform is called Co, C-O. And this digital platform provides advice to small businesses through the voice of other small businesses. And so not only were we able to provide information through webinars by experts and people who had trained to be experts in PPP and other aid, we also were able to activate this small business digital platform where we were able to tell the stories of how a grocery store survived so that other small businesses could learn from that grocery store. And that's been successful. And in fact, post-COVID, which is where we are now, um, Suzanne, the, the president of the, of the chamber, is committed to continuing that type of resource to our local chambers and to our small businesses. So we learned a lot from it, and we're in a different place now in order to provide information, whether that information is on cybersecurity or um, web-based marketing, whatever the case is, we're a different chamber now, and we're able to provide advice that's useful. uh, And at the same time, we're keeping up with our advocacy efforts. So I guess we kind of learned how to chew bubble gum and <laughs> pat our stomach and walk at the same time. Um, but it's been, it's been really rewarding to see that there's a commitment to doubling down on providing resources long-term. That's a great segue to the next question I wanted to ask you. What are the best communication channels you find for reaching out to your membership? I think that the straightforward answer is the best communication tool are the small business owners themselves. So we have an enormous amount of expertise in Washington, D.C. And it's important that we utilize that expertise. But as far as messages actually moving the dial on policy and then actually helping other small business owners, we found that the best messenger for that 
our other small businesses. I mean, this is grassroots in a sense. Yes, grassroots uh, on steroids because <laughs> you know, with with the advent of so many tech, technology tools, you really uh, you're really able to take one statement and magnify it and have an incredible ripple effect to really make a difference. Uh, but I continue to believe that that statement is best when it comes directly from a small business owner. So I'm hearing you saying that this communications is two-way. Yes. I mean, you're not just pushing out information to them, although you do that, right? But you're gathering information from them and then letting them be the best voice for what they need. Yeah, you know, I, even though my teenage boys do not believe that I'm a very good storyteller or a joke giver, um, most of my job is storytelling, you know, telling the stories of remarkable men and women entrepreneurs and, and founders. And taking those stories and then putting them in front of members of Congress are really what make a difference. I'll give an example. I mean, one of our wonderful small business council members, Tracy Tappany. She runs a sheet metal fabrication company just north of Twin Cities, Minneapolis. And uh, she was invited to the White House yesterday because of her leadership on workforce development. And really a remarkable business owner, uh, a remarkable community leader, and I learn a lot from her, but more importantly, the other people who were at this event at the White House yesterday learned from her. Personal anecdotes go a long way in this town. Yeah, they That's do. so true. If you've got a story you'd like to tell or you have a recommendation of someone who would make a great guest on 80 Proof Politics, email us at 80proofpolitics at gmail.com. That's 80proofpolitics at gmail.com. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. The chamber's really active politically, and it's got to be a daunting task internally, how to make the decisions of how to engage in the political process, the campaign process, elections overall. What's the internal process for making those decisions? Well, you know, so there's the there's the internal facing and the external facing. The external facing right now 
is barnstorming all over the United States, uh, meeting with candidates who we've we've endorsed. The internal process is much like the committee process for many organizations. We have uh, a PAC committee, and that PAC, that that PAC committee considers uh, pro business candidates, and then makes a decision on whether we endorse and we don't. We also have a scorecard uh, where we rank. Um, members of Congress on their votes and, and to determine whether or not they're pro-business. We, we rejiggered that scorecard uh, a couple of years ago in a way that I think it is, it is valuable for your listeners to understand because I think it's going to set the tone for a lot of scorecards throughout Washington, D.C. It's the acknowledgement that a lot of the hard work doesn't happen just when you take a vote on the House or the Senate floor. But shouldn't, shouldn't a member of Congress who gets bipartisan buy-in and works that bill through committee all the way to the, to the floor, shouldn't they get extra credit or has the courage to actually speak out against a bill that is devastating to small business uh, in a committee hearing? And the bill doesn't get to the floor largely because of the leadership of that particular member of Congress. Shouldn't one, of the, they get one of the toughest metrics in this business is the value of playing defense. Yeah. And so we, we've rejiggered the scorecard to reflect the kind of the blocking and tackling that happens before someone does a touchdown dance. Um, and I, I, th- I think it's really proving to be a valuable learning tool for the chamber because it has led to uh, the PAC board making those endorsements, and then it has, I think, impressed members of Congress who know that they're going to get credit for some of the hard work they do that is largely unknown because sometimes it doesn't end up in a House or Senate vote. We talked about how massive the chamber is. How many small business members do you have? We have several hundred thousand. So Yeah, so it's interesting because... We count the members of those 2,000 chambers to be small business members as well. So when you get, you know, I've never, math has never been my strongest suit, but when you get close to 3 million businesses, it's a little hard to keep track. Um, we do know, roughly speaking, that about uh, 75% of our membership have fewer than 100 employees. About 96% have fewer than 10 employees. So. If, if folks were to do the math of 96% of 3 million, they'll come up with a number. That's our yeah. small business membership. Jeez. Well, God, no wonder. I took, I mean, the, there's no way you could respond to policy priority suggestions from every single one of those members. I mean, that's death by a thousand paper cuts. So now I see why you have these councils. Okay. How does a small business member of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce get into that role at a seat at the council table? Oh, Bill, thank you for asking about how, like, how the heck could we, do we figure out like what millions of business, small business owners need? There's two ways. One is our policy ca- council, our, which is called the Small Business Council, and the other is through a quarterly survey we do with our partner, MetLife. We uh, index uh, hundreds of small businesses every quarter we ask them 10 key questions and then we track that over time that provides us with valuable insight on 
how businesses are doing, how they think they're going to be doing. Um, but the day-to-day stuff, I get directly from our Small Business Council. Those 100 members, we limit it to 100 um, to keep it exclusive, and they really are a remarkable group. They come from all over. They come from our annual Dream Big Awards, which we just held last month, where we pick eight different categories um, and then recognize the top businesses in those categories. And we actually give out a $25,000 prize to the top small business in the country. This, this year, it was a remarkable company um, called Carbon Rivers from Knoxville, Tennessee. These just brilliant uh, engineers who have figured out a way to recite, recycle glass fiber. And it, they're, they're on the track to be very, very successful. I think they've got 12 employees now, and they're gauging that they'll have over 100 employees in 2023. Uh, but we get, we get small business council members from, from there. We also get suggestions from our 10 regional offices. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting in the policy space because the small business owners who want to give back, and that, that is the primary criteria of our small business council membership. They have to want to give back to try and make and convince political leaders that America is better off with a pro-growth business environment. And it takes a lot of volunteer hours to do that. Uh, and many small business owners, this wouldn't surprise most people, the small business owners want to give back. They do it in various ways, and we're able to help them scratch that itch if one of those ways is to be involved in federal policy. I said at the top, this is a perfect position for you, given your wealth of experience with small business. So let me, let me just run through some of your previous roles and responsibilities. You were... Most recently, well, you've been doing this six years, right? Yeah, no, no. He's yawning, just so you know. Yeah, he's a humble guy. You've been doing this for six years, right? Before that, you did a stint at the Bipartisan Policy Center. You were doing small business and other issues there, right? You were a partner with a law firm here and uh, focusing on small business for, what, almost seven years, I think, on and off. You did a couple of stints there, right? In between those stints, though, you were the chief counsel for advocacy at the Small Business Administration. That was, you were well into two terms there, right? You did that for about seven years. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about that role. What, what is the job of the chief counsel for advocacy at SBA? So, you know, Bill, I, I have this expression called pinch me moments. You know, when you go to the Lincoln Memorial at midnight, that's a pinch me moment. You know, when you're able to walk the halls of the Senate or the House of Representatives and you look around and understand what those halls mean to the democracy of the United States, those are pinch me moments. Serving the President of the United States as Chief Counsel for Advocacy at the Small Business Administration, that was that was a six-year pinch me moment. Uh, just incredible honor to be able to represent America's small businesses and work within an administration and just try 
try to make a little bit of a positive difference. It, it was it was just an incredible experience um, and an honor to 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 serve in that position. Um, I had a lot of fun too. Uh, met some incredible people. Visited almost every state capital and tried to learn from state legislators as as well as small business owners. Uh, a lot of fun in that position. That, without a doubt. Uh, a highlight of, of my career being able to, to serve. I mean, you listed all of these jobs. It, it is humbling uh, to, to only be able to do one thing, which is advocate for small business. But I think, you know, after, after close to 30 years, I'm, I'm getting the hang of it. So tell me, what exactly did you do as chief counsel? So it's, it's actually exactly what I'm doing now. The Office of Advocacy at SBA is... It, basically an inspector general role. Hmm. The job is to lessen the regulatory burden on small business. Uh, There is a law called the Regulatory Flexibility Act that requires every federal agency to publish a small business impact statement when it proposes rules, regulations, and mandates. And SBA's Office of Advocacy is basically the cop on the beat when it comes to making sure that those agencies are sensitive to how they're going to impact small business. We also had a remarkable small team of economists uh, who uh, made a little bit of money go a long way and tried to fill gaps of research. Uh, I think probably the one that I'm most proud of, we were able to publish how small businesses innovate at a faster rate than some of their larger research and development competitors. We, What we did was we worked with a researcher to measure patent citations. We found that small businesses oh, innovate at like 12 to oh, 15 God, times the rate of their... Job. <laughs> Well, luckily, I wasn't the researcher, uh, but the research itself is—I I still see it cited frequently. But that was an area where we kind of had a sense of the innovative power of small business, but what, no one was ever, ever able to really put a number on it. Uh, so we were able to do that, and that was—that was a lot of fun. Um, learning to manage on the fly uh, is both a challenge and an incredible opportunity. I think. It's, it's part of our political system that very few people know about. It's that you know, I was nominated to serve in this position because of my leadership on small business issues, not because I'm a great manager. And so all of a sudden I'm managing 50 people, and that was, that it was fun learning. Well, I thought it was fun. I'm not sure if the 50 people I was managing uh, <laughs> thought it was fun. But that also was an incredible experience, and, and I realized um, – how hardworking many of the public servants are um, in, in the different positions. And, and they are really what makes the government work, are, are the people, not the people like me who are political appointees who come in and out on every four or eight years, but it's the folks that have longstanding uh, public service careers that make a difference. And just nudging them in a specific direction is it's a lot of fun it's a, it's fun when everyone starts rowing the boat in the same direction and uh, 
uh, yeah, gave me experiences I'll never forget. Now, this is a presidential appointed position, and you were obviously well known in this world at that time. I mean, you had come from many years a senior position, senior policy position at NFIB, which is National Federation of Independent Businesses. But this also means you had to go through Senate confirmation. What is that process like? <laughs> uh, it's a humbling process. It's also an incredible process. You get you get to meet senators who you never would have the opportunity to meet otherwise. I was lucky because being from the Boston area, the two senior senators at the time were pretty influential, and I, I think that helped, and they both supported my nomination. Uh, Senator Ted Kennedy uh, was, was, I think he was named like the lion of, of, of the Senate. He supported my nomination. And then Senator John Kerry was actually the chairman of the Senate mm-hmm. Small Business and Entrepreneurship Committee at the time, who was the committee that was in charge of my nomination. And so he supported my nomination. So I, I, I think in the scheme of things, I could be fairly characterized as a non-controversial uh, nomination. That has to help. Although I, I do gotta, I, I, I gotta, I do gotta tell this story because, you, know, in my job at NFIB, we were we were pretty critical of a lot of senators. Uh, yeah, that's the downside of that process, yeah. which is where I was going with that question because you were known. So there was, yeah. So there was one particular uh, senator, Senator Wellstone, who we we really kind of went to war on on some some issues, and. Uh, I had to meet with, well, I, I met with him prior to my nomination, and I was terrified. Um, he was the nicest person that I met with in that whole process. Oh, that's great. Uh, we got to know each other a little bit. He was, I had coached wrestling. He's, he, he was a wrestler himself. His son actually was coaching wrestling, and uh, he, he passed away, unfortunately, um, but there was, a, there was a time where we had, were making plans to go see his son coach a wrestling match. Uh, and that was a really cool part of the process is, is that we get so caught up in the politics of stuff, which are headline news, we forget sometimes that the story of how senators are human beings mm-hmm. gets lost in, in, in the shuffle. And going through a Senate confirmation, you get to see that firsthand and it's it's, it's rewarding, and it does restore a lot of faith in, in democracy as well. So, Tom, what was your first job in D.C.? So, so my first job in Washington, D.C. was as an intern in the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, not exactly a small business outfit. No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I handled a liaison responsibility um, between small businesses and EPA, but to say that those interests were always friendly and cordial would would not be accurate um i i I had a a a great a great job i had a boss who were still very good friends um he took a chance on me you know i i had republican credentials um it it was uh, under president clinton uh carol browner was the administrator and um my boss needed someone who could handle the enforcement 
portfolio and small business portfolio who wasn't political. Uh, and, and he did. He took a chance on me. Uh, and I'm glad I didn't let him down. We're still really good friends now. Um, and that experience, uh, starting at a lower level, uh, is an experience I would encourage any young professional and even any student in college to take advantage of. I found my experience working at lower levels and at higher levels of government, you work hard and you want to work well on a team, you're going to do really well in government. And you can rise very quickly with that type of attitude. Uh, I've always been a hard worker, um, and I, I think that that helped propel me up through the ranks pretty quickly. Um, but service in the federal government is incredibly rewarding, not necessarily monetarily, but experientially. You're able to do so many different things, and you're able to achieve what many people move to Washington to do, which is to make a positive difference in hundreds or thousands of people's lives. And you can do that uh, working in, in federal government. So um, if folks are thinking about, you know, well, where do I start? You know, I'll make a plea. The federal government needs good people working in it so that the government writ large can do good things for people. Uh, otherwise, uh, it doesn't work out so well. well. Knowing a bit about your background, I know it wasn't necessarily your education because I'm going to share something you probably don't know. We both come from a common English undergrad JD background. Interesting. You don't have to necessarily be a government major to chart your course in this town, do you? No. No, you, you don't. I mean, I was an English major because I speak English pretty well. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I love to write. I still like to write. Uh, I was an English major uh, and then went to law school. Loved law. I think law prepares you for D.C. pretty well. Uh, the, the idea that you can acknowledge and appreciate an adversary's position, dissect it, and advocate the opposite position is basically what they teach you in law school. They also teach you how to negotiate and come to a mutually beneficial outcome. Uh, Which is somewhat of a dying art these days. Yeah, it's valuable. I mean, you know, the old term for being a lawyer is counselor. Mm -hmm. More and more I, I think about that, and that certainly has provided me value in my career in Washington. Tom, it's been great having you on 80 Proof Politics. It's been great catching up with you. Appreciate you doing this. And just remember, no matter what you think about the current state of politics these days, whether you think the glass is half empty or half full, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. Well, our drinks are half empty right now, but it's definitely a half full conversation. So thank we'll you, It was a very full conversation, but we may have to <laughs> remedy the drink situation. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? 
or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.